Okay, so as Nigel said, this first reading is from Revelation chapter 4, starting at verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The reading is at chapter five, Revelation chapter 5, starting from verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. 
The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. There's a question that a lot of science fiction asks. Um, it's launched many, many books. It's the key to many films. And it's the question, what if? What if, if this world is not all there is? What if uh, an alien, like you can see on the screen, but it come from outer space and land? What if there was life that uh, created this world that exists beyond Pluto? What if there was a reality um, that's different from what we know and we could be transported not from here to there, but from there to here? What, what if there is something other than the world which we see? What if there's an alternative kind of reality so that they could descend? Uh, that we could go and ascend to be with them. What, what if? That's a question that the book of Revelation asks as well. What if, what if this world is not all there is? What if there is a reality just there that God is in control of, not just the world in which we see, but we could see God? What if there is an existence that we can enjoy with God through his son in heaven? without any stain of sin and death, without any tears and sadness and sorrow. So the world in which we live, that's just, a, just like a cold cave where that reality would be a mountain range. What if? Jesus says you don't need to wonder. Jesus says you don't need to ponder. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he, he takes John by the hand, so to speak, and says, let me show you reality. Let me pull back the curtain. Don't want you to be in any doubt about the future. Jesus, the historical man of heaven, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus says, I want to show you the future, but not just the future. I want to show you the reality of the present. It's a reality that you can't see with your physical eyes, but by faith you can. And as we journey from chapters 2 and 3 to 4 and 5, the throne room of, of God, we're in the next big section of revelation that you can see on the screen there are seven visions that jesus reveals to john as we journey through the next big section of revelation this is the the main one of four and five you can see a, a vision of heaven and then there's another vision of seven scrolls and seven trumpets and seven seals and you can see seven is quite important to the book of revelation before we see the new heavens and the new earth right at the end Remember the context of which this is written into. This is the suffering church, AD 70, AD 80. Great persecution has been experienced already and a new persecution is just around the corner. And so Jesus says, I want to show you reality. And he invites him, chapter four, verse one, to come up. The first voice I heard invited me to come up and it opened a door for me. Not a curtain, but a door is opened up. And Jesus, the man of heaven, exposes John to the reality of heaven uh, eight times. In the first eight, seven or eight verses, you can see this word throne that's mentioned. And we see right into the throne room of heaven, where God the Father is seated with complete authority and majesty and resplendent rule and reign over the whole cosmos. Everything is under his authoritative control. Everything is sustained by a word of his power and might. Nothing is beyond his remit. Nothing is beyond his control. What comfort this would have given to the first century Christians and to every Christians 
to the degree we see it, we will be comforted. But I want us to notice not just who's on the throne, but I want to focus actually beyond verse 8 and to see the need for worship. Notice everyone is worshipping. That's what this passage teaches us in chapters 4 and 5, the need for worship and the wave of worship and the focus of worship. But let's begin with the need, the need for worship that each one of us has. We need to talk about numbers. The number seven is uh, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, and seven churches, and seven spirits. And the number seven is clearly the number from creation. It's the number of completion. Six is an imperfect number. Seven is a number of perfection. But that's not the only numbers we come across in these passages. We see that the whole of creation is worshipping the one who sits seated on the throne. All of creation is worshipping the author of creation. Verse 4, you come across the number 24. 24 elders are worshipping the one who's on the throne, God the Father. Now 24, probably, probably that stands for 12 tribes from the Old Testament, 12 apostles from the New Testament. It's symbolic of the people of God, of the church of God old and new and then down in verse six you've got four the four living creatures four the number four in the book of revelation is uh, uh, probably symptomatic it's representative of the earth and here you've got four living creatures it's the the domesticated animal the ox you've got the lion which is representative of the wild animal the wild animal kingdom that we see in david attenborough's programs and then you've got the A creature that's kind of strange, it's human-like, faces like the human, it's a face like a man, representative of humanity. And then you've got the flying animals as well. All of creation is represented by the four living creatures. And and what are they doing, the 24 elders, what are they doing, the four creatures? They are worshipping the one who's on the throne. There's nothing new here that the rest of the Bible doesn't already describe and explain. All of creation is designed to praise the author of creation who's seated on the throne. Psalm 19 says that. Creation was built. It was made for to declare the praise of the one who made it. The one whose fingertips are all over it. Every note from music is designed to praise the author of music. Every sentence of literature that's healthy and good proclaims the one who who spoke the first word into being. Everything is made to proclaim the designer who made it. But humanity, we proclaim God's praise in a different way to a sunset, to a different way to a cloudy sky, to a different way that thunder and lightning does. We have a soul, so we are different from the animal kingdom. We rule and reign it under our vice regency to God who reigns supreme. So in what way is a human praiser, worshipper, different to a tree that claps its hands or to a sunset or a sunrise or a mountain range? Here are some examples. Think about someone that loves music. There is a lady in your mind's eye who loves music. She's passionate about uh, seeing music performed, and so she collects a ticket. She researches when a, a concert is going to be on, and she also gets a hand on MP3 file so she can listen to it and familiarize herself with the music. 
She reads about the composer. She reads about where the music was designed and written when it was first performed, the different variations through history that it's been performed. She cannot wait to go to the concert. Her appetite is uh, wetted. It's moistened, so to speak, the closer it gets to the time. And then she's there. Then she's there seeing the music performed. It's not just hearing it, she's seeing it. She's caught in wonder and praise, not just at the, uh, the person with the baton and the person with the double bass. She is caught up in praise and wonder about the author of music that she's researched and listened to. Now she's seen it and felt the reverberations of the music as it's performed. She's praising the one who authored the music, but that's not enough. Think about uh, the history of the world. Think about the fact that kings and queens, whenever there's been kings or queens ruling over a nation, it's a very bloody and often a tyrannical rule and reign throughout history. And where countries have still got kings and queens, a lot of our printed page, a lot of our internet, a lot of our obsession is around what's happening with royalty. Buckingham Palace, how's the queen doing? What have Harry and Meghan said now? And so on. But for countries that don't have royalty, who do they praise? Who are they fascinated by? They are often fascinated by celebrity, those with beautiful sporting bodies, those with, who create uh, great music, those who are just renowned for reality existence and make everything they can beautiful by their presence and face. One day I'm talking about. It's the glitz and the glamour because it just proves whether it be music or sport or fashion, we love to praise someone outside of ourselves. And if it's not God, we will still be worshippers of someone or something. We turn people who are just the same as us into celebrities because there's an echo in our hearts of the wonder whom we are made for. We are made to be worshippers. We are made to be someone who gives praise to our author and our creator and our maker, to King Jesus. And that's what's happening in the heavenly throne room. That's what all of eternity and history is about. And so 24 elders and all the living creatures are praising representatively for all creation, the one who is on the throne of heaven. So let me ask you, do you recognize that in your heart? Is there evidence of that in your life? Are you someone who is fascinated by their internet feed and by their Twitter feed and by their time and energy by celebrity. Be honest, is, is your Facebook just really just an opportunity to snoop on other people? Are you a worshipper of a sporting team? So actually you can't wait for Sky Sports at four o'clock or quarter past seven. You can't wait for Football Focus to come on. You can't wait for that concert to arrive. You can't wait for Glastonbury next year. We are worshippers of someone or of something, it might be our family, it might be our reputation, it might be our children, but all of us are made to be worshippers. We are made to be worshippers, and that passage that we've read this morning speaks to that. It shows us our DNA. It shows us that we are made to worship. All of creation does. All of us will be worshipping someone or something. Everything must worship. But that's not all this passage says. It also says how to do it. If that's the need in our human heart to be worshippers, we're also told how to worship in this passage. How should we do it? 
look again, there's a lot to be said here. And you've got all the elements of praise and worship in chapter four and in chapter five. I mean, look at the elements of worship. Look at how to do it. Verse eight of chapter four. You've got how to praise. You've got verse 11 of chapter four and verse nine of chapter five. You've got thanksgiving. People are bowing down and praising God for who he is and for what he's done. You've even chapter five, verse five. You've got confession. You've got John weeping. Think about that later. You've got all kinds of worship and all kinds of praise, but not just what is happening. You've got how the worship, how the praise is being given. Look at chapter five, verses eight and nine. New songs are being sung. You've got instruments, verse eight of chapter five. You've got harps that are being played. You've got prayers that are being offered under the altar. But it's important to say for all the content and for all the means of praise, there is something that undergirds it all. And that is that truth is always the fuel for praise. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. You are worthy for you have created. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. You are worthy because you were slain. Worshipping God has to be emotional. Our emotions are given to us by God. It has to be the heart, but it has to be more than that. If it's just emotional, it can pass and fade, just like going to a concert, going to a sporting event, and you get carried away. You get caught in the moment, but then it passes. Praising God is not like that. Our emotions has to be involved, but it's founded on the truth of who God is and what he has done. Notice the two accounts, the two reasons that the worship is being poured out in heaven. We praise you, God, you are worthy because of you have created all things, chapter four. But we praise you, we worship you, God, because you were slain, Jesus. Your blood was slain for the rescue of the whole world. Do you see what's going on here? Worshipping God is founded on truth. It's founded on truth. It's founded on truth. And it simply says, for you, for you created, for you were slain for your people. It's more than emotion. It's the, ex, it's the explosion and the exposition and the development and the understanding of truth of what God has done and truth of who he is. That's the fuel for praise and worship. That means it's more than emotion, but our emotions must be part of it. We must be raising our hands. We must be saying amen in a very non-British way. But our hearts must be burning and our emotions are always involved whether we raise our hands or not. Whether we say amen or not, our emotions are fueled by the truth of God's person, his nature and his work. So underneath all of this, the way God is to be praised and the instruments that are used and the songs that are sung is this one word, worthy, worthy. It's everywhere. Verse 11, worthy are you because you've created. Who is worthy? Verse 2 of chapter 5 to open the scroll. You are worthy. Chapter 5 verse 9, you're worthy. Worthy is an economic word. Worthy is a word of evaluation. Are you worthy or not? It's an economic word and to change tact, this simple parable that's just two sentences in Matthew chapter 11 
really gets under the skin and helps us to understand what the word worthy means. This tiny two sentence parable, let me remind you of it. It's about the kingdom of God and someone, let me read to you what Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a field. When a man found hidden treasure in that field with joy, he went out, sold everything he had, and he bought the field. Do you see what happened? This person is, uh, hasn't got one of those devices that you see down the beach. He hasn't got a metal detector, but he finds treasure that's hidden. And he evaluates his uh, share portfolio, so to speak. He puts his hand in his pocket and he gets out his contactless card and says, I will pay and I will liquidate all my assets because I have found a treasure, a pearl of great price that is worth me selling, liquidating, evaluating the cost of and everything I have is nothing in comparison with this treasure. And that is what is happening in heaven. And that is what happens whenever someone worships God. Is God worthy of your praise? Is God worthy of our adoration, our renown? Is he worthy of our energies and of our resources? Is he worth giving our life toward and for? Look at what heaven is saying. You are worthy. They've let the richness, the infinite value, the fame, the renown, the very person of God has come into their hearts by his spirits. And all of creation is saying you are worthy. There is no one in earth and heaven that is greater than you. We want to give our lives in praise and worship of you. We want to lay down everything and worship you. How is it shown? It's shown in verse 10 by them laying down their crowns. Here are two ways that you can tell if you're worshipping God. First one is in 4.10. Revelation 4.10, you see, you see evidence of worship. They are evaluating worth and greatness. And crowns are taken from heads and laid down at the feet of the one who is worthy. When you worship God, you see his preeminence, you see his value, you see his beauty, you sense his loveliness. This is not something that's just understood as a concept. It's not just something you write down. One of the signs when the spirit of God is at work is when people stop putting down their pens or start putting down their pens rather, and they're attentive by God's spirit to who God is. They're evaluating and saying, Jesus is altogether lovely. Jesus is precious to me. Jesus is not just beautiful. He's the definition of beauty. And he's worthy of my life. He's preeminent. He's in charge of everything. Nothing else matters apart from who God is. One of the signs that you can use as an evaluation to see if you're worshipping God is that you can ask yourself, as I've asked myself this week, that hard question, have I taken off the throne, the crown of my life and laid it at his feet? Am I worshipping the one who's on the throne? If I live my life for power, then power has me under its control. If I live my life for approval, then approval has me under its control. If I live for control, then control has me under its control. You do not belong to yourself. You and I are worshipping someone. But let's earth this a bit more. 
if you worship God, he becomes the number one. You take off the throne, the, the, the crown of your life, and you lay it at his feet. And so if Jesus is number one in your life, like the children's song says that we sing, if God becomes most important, if he is the number one priority in your life, it affects everything. It affects how you handle your money. It affects how you conduct your career. It affects how you carry out your relationships. It sure affects how you use your tongue. It affects how you form and frame your opinions. So let me ask you, has that happened to you? Is God the most precious person in your life? Do all your decisions revolve around you or do they all revolve around him? Where do you get your ethics from? Where do you get your values from? How are your emotions spent? Are they spent worshipping him or are they spent focusing on something else? There's no greater question that you can ask yourself this morning. Have you cast your crown at his feet, lost in wonder, love and praise? That's the theme that the drumbeat of the throne room of heaven. You are worthy. No one else is. Has that happened to you? It's a sign that you're worshipping God. But here's the second one. Here's the second one. Not only are you worshipping God, taking off the crown from your head, you feel like a priest and a king. Look at 5.9 with me. You are worthy, chapter 5, verse 9, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. There is a princess. Well, there are a number of princesses, but there's a princess in our home. This week, our eldest daughter, Megan, I have asked her approval to share this. Our eldest daughter to Megan, who's on her bike to school, even when it rains. She came home and she said, Dad, I have something to contend with you about. Now, that could have been many things, but she said, you've said to me, you've taught us children that a sign of the gospel is that we are sons and daughters of the king. That means I'm a princess because I've been doing some thinking on my bike. Princess don't ride bicycles. It's great logic from Megan. Princesses don't ride bicycles. But then here's the answer. It's the difference between the now and the not yet. It's a silly example to show you and to show me that one of the signs that you're worshipping God is that you know by faith who you already are. You are sons and daughters of the king. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus, which means you are already, you're already part of the kingdom of priests. And our purpose then will be and now is to serve our king and to make known his fame and to make known his glory, to make much of him. That's our identity by faith in Christ today. So what does it mean to worship? It means to fill our hearts with the value and worth of God, to let it sink in, to let it seep in. And it means to make his name known. Has that radical new self-image that you're a son and daughter of the king, our new identity that's made true in Jesus, has that formed your mind, your heart, your values and your self-worth? It's not enough just to worship God because of who he is. You have to let the truth sink in and marinate your heart. But we need to finish up. What's the focus? What's the focus of the worship in this passage? Well, I'm not a fan of Disney. I've made that pretty well documented, but there is a great story in Disney that I want to share with you. It's the story of Cinderella. You know the story of Cinderella? Cinderella is basically a love story. 
It's a love story when a prince has to find someone with whom his heart has been joined. He had one lovely evening of dancing and loves this person's character, but she's disappeared. She can't be found. And so the whole film or book or play is about trying to find the one who, whose heart has been joined to his. And it's all about the slipper. It's all about this lovely glass slipper, this, this slipper that fits one foot and one foot alone. Will it fit the slipper of the uh, older sisters that have been so unkind? Will it be the mother-in-law and so on? It fits no one. And you can just imagine tears down his face until he finds his one true love's grubby foot because she works hard as Cinders does, working hard, keeping clean the floors and polishing and cleaning the dishes and keeping the chandeliers clean. There is someone for whom this glass slipper fits her foot. But in Revelation 5, the search is even greater and the search is true. It's not about a slipper. It's about the title deeds of history. That's a phrase that someone has used to describe not a slipper, but to describe the seven seals on the title deeds of history, all of God's purposes for history, humanity, the whole of the cosmos, and all of salvation's purposes are described in this scroll. It's written on both sides, in and out. And there is weeping in a place where there is promised to be no more tears. There is weeping in the throne room of heaven because no one can be found in heaven, under heaven, throughout the heavens that is suited to open the scroll. No one can be found who has loved God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. And no one can be found who has loved others and do to them as we would long for them to do to us. No one has lived like that. And so John looks with tears, tears weeping and streaming down his, his face because no one in earth and no one in the heavens has lived a life of that purity. No one. But with tears down his face, sensing the helplessness, there is one found. Someone puts his hand on his shoulder, so to speak, and says, there is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The silence is broken. The tears stop. And in verse six, John looks to see a lion, looks to find someone of might and power and authority, someone who is like the greatness of the animal kingdom. But instead, he sees someone who has been slain. Instead, he says in his mind's eye and in his heart, something like John the Baptist said, behold, Behold the Lamb of God. Remember years ago in the book of Exodus, when God's might was shown by judging his enemies, and the worst of all the plagues was saved to sacrifice the eldest son in every household where there was not blood on the lintels, where a sacrifice had not been made. And John the Baptist was the one who could see that those woolly animals, their death, did nothing. They just pointed to the Lamb of God who would die for the sins of the world. And that's the hope for the world. And John sees in heaven not the might and majesty of the ruler of the animal kingdom, 
but he sees this slain lamb. And then all his tears are washed away. He says, I get it. Behold, the slain lamb of God. He is the one who is worthy. He is the one who deserves our worship. Do you know what it really means to worship God? What it really means is to worship the one who is on the throne and it means to worship the lamb. It means to do what John the Baptist said. It means to behold the lamb of God. It means to behold the lamb of God who paid for the sins of the world. It means not just to believe it, but to behold him, to make much of him, to be attentive to his work and his presence in our lives. It means to take him to our hearts as the slain one to see how much we are valued and loved by our Father in heaven who gave heaven's best for his glory and our great need. I mean, many of us don't take criticism very well, do we? Many of us don't have very much self-confidence. We feel low about ourselves. We feel anxious. And so we place all our value on what other people will say about us. We've been crushed even this week. We're up and we're down like a fiddler's elbow. We live as if nobody loves us. This Christian friend is how much you are loved. God has placed his love upon you in his son. And he has made much of you in him. Look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is this your song? Can you sing with all of creation? Worthy is the Lamb. If this is not your song. Can you see that you are made for this transcendent worship? Now, I kid you not, one of the highlights of last year was when a good friend of ours took us to see the Messiah. Joe and I and a couple of the kids went up to the Royal Festival Hall and we got to see and experience the Messiah. I listened to it again this week. There is one song right at the end that took me back to the Royal Festival Hall last year. I mean, you should have seen it. It looked like this, but this picture doesn't quite do it justice. The uh, individual members of uh, the performance, the singers, the baritone was great. The soprano was pretty good. The mezzo-soprano was fantastic. The person on the bass was superb. The celloist was wonderful. The violinist, but the choir, the choir was something else. There was 300 strong choir. And at the end, they sang with all their might. And the hair of my head stood right upright because I thought of heaven. I thought of this song. I thought, do they know the one of whom they're singing? The one of whom Handel composed about? Worthy is the Lamb. 300 people singing this song. Let me tell you, as the hair stand on the back of my head now, that is nothing to the praise and worship and renown that God is receiving every single moment in heaven. What if? You don't need to ask what if. All of history is about Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, about the praise and worship of God. This is the anthem of heaven. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and blessing and praise.